0: IT businesses in From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT
1: with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 138 of the Killing It, Killing Whoa. It! podcast. I'm Carl joined today by Dave and Ryan and we are just having fun looking forward to the holidays and we have a question. We What's do. Happening?
2: So gents, if money didn't matter, which past job would you go back and do for a year?
1: Well, for me, this one's pretty easy. I loved the first year of college I worked in a lumberyard. And I had worked as, in a hardware store during high school. But when I got to the lumberyard, I was all, you know, whatever, grown up. And, and they put me in charge of the tools department. And I got to completely redo that. And then they hadn't sold paint. And I said, you should have a paint department. And so they put me in charge of the paint department. And so, you know, I was like 18 years old in charge of two departments at a lumberyard. And uh, got to learn how to drive a dump truck with a snowplow on it. And just all kinds of fun. It was a, It was a very good thing. And it kept me somewhat sober in that I often had to work at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning. So Friday night was not a drinking night for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A responsible answer even. And again, very grown up responsibilities for somebody at 18. I will say mine was probably when I was 16, 17 years old and I worked for a summer as like an assistant at the golf course, right? And uh, I, what, when I was that age, I used to think, oh, the dream job, grow up and be a golf pro, just get to hang out at golf courses and talk to people about playing golf and teach lessons. Wouldn't that be brilliant? And then I grew up and I met people who do that for a living and I realized they didn't have <laughs> any money at all. It's a brutal <laughs> job. But being outside, standing around nice golf courses, it was a ton of fun, just not exactly a lucrative career.
1: So you were you were like Caddyshack,
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's what I that's what I wished that it had. Been. Like I really hard wished that it was like that. It was so much more boring.
2: <laughs> <laughs> See, I, you know, I, I can't go back and be a paper boy. and I worked at McDonald's. So like those aren't the great But but I think if I had to pick one, it would my college one one of the years I was there, uh, I did. Uh, the logistics for the debate team for all of their travel and all of their like, you know, the arrangements for all of the gigs. And it was actually great fun because it was this like quasi travel agent kind of job where my job was to get people to and from and do all of the bookings. And particularly now where it's like, Oh, I've been doing so much travel for years. I'm so good at it. (laughs) That like just some kind of quasi travel agent for, for college kids flying around on the debate team. That was good fun.
0: I would totally do that again. And the pressure, not very high. Right. As a person who was on the debate team and spent a lot of time in a 15-passenger van, uh, I I would like to have had somebody who was competent in your position. So I would endorse you going back and doing that job. (laughs) Well
2: this week brought to you by our friends at ignite are you still using on-prem file servers and vpns to share files with remote workers ignite is a business class cloud sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions with a security first approach to file sharing and collaboration ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources and do it all addressing data governance and compliance want to learn more check out ignite.com
1: msp and when you do tell them we sent you all righty so topic number one today is skimpflation so this is basically like or shrinkflation you know the concept that rather than raising the prices you're just going to get a little bit less and we've all seen it you know you you buy the candy bar, or whatever, and it's just like a quarter inch shorter than it was a year ago, right? Uh, and, and so the, the price doesn't necessarily change, but what you get for the money does. And so the question is, with all of the shortages in IT, is this something that we're going to have to do? Like keep the prices the same, but give a little less service, give a little less to uh, our clients, Um what do you guys think you know it's a it makes you
2: pause right it's the it's the one that makes you pause because nobody will want to say oh yeah i'm gonna do that like nobody wants to say that uh not out loud and so if i'm being honest with that i suspect there's going to be some of that response times may drop on-site service may drop people may use kind of cloud cover of pandemic, post-pandemic changes of work to do a little less on that front, particularly on the labor intensive stuff. If I always fall back on like, look, the number one expense in most IT services firms is labor. And if you have a little less of it, you're going to be very, very careful on what it spends its time with. And on-site service, always the hardest bit to do, right? So I expect that might be the bit that gets uh, trimmed back. I don't think anybody will
0: admit it, but I suspect some of that will be happening. Well, the people who I will tell you have already admitted it and said, oh, of course, it's because of the tight labor market, but it's really just for cost savings, is every hotel chain you might want to go spend your money at. They have perfected the the front desk response to wait a minute why are you not actually providing cleaning services anymore oh the tight labor market um okay are you trying to hire people because i know somebody who would like to come and get this job right now would you be interviewing and hiring oh well no we're not actually hiring but it's a very tight labor market so we can't provide all the services but we would be perfectly happy for you to pay full price right We know this is happening. The question that I have, tactically speaking, inside your IT services business, is there actually that much in-person or labor-based cost that you could get away with without structurally altering the things that you do? Uh, If I am a typical MSP, 10 or fewer headcount. Using heavy leverage on technology tools, automation, RMM, PSA, yada, yada, right? My number of clients or number of devices per service head has grown by tenfold since a decade ago. And if I say, oh, I'm just going to do 10% less service, we're going to look around and go, yeah, but which of the two guys over there who does that are you going to get rid of? And then that's going not going to reduce your service capability by 10%. It's going to slash it in half, right? I think we've got such leverage into the IT services marketplace, we might be in trouble. I would go the other direction. My recommendation, don't skimp on your services, raise your prices. In order to get good people, in order to win the recruiting uh, wars right now, we need to pay good salaries to get good people to join and stay on our team. Uh, you know what? You, pay, you get what you pay for in this world. And so our prices are going up correspondingly. Well,
1: I would say as a business coach, my advice that I've actually told people for many years, I've, I have wrote it in, into seminars 12 years ago. You should be pushing work down to people who are not expensive engineers. When you think about moving stuff to the cloud, setting up Microsoft 365 accounts is not a technical job. It is an administrative job. And it can be outsourced to somebody who gets 15 to $20 an hour, not, you know, $75 an hour. And I also think that as service industry, I mean, we have so much flexibility because I can, I can design three-tiered price plans that encourage people to choose the top tier, the middle tier, or the bottom tier. And everybody does this wrong, in my opinion, 99% of them. They have three different tiers with three different distinct price values. And so they make it difficult for their clients to choose. I've never sold a gold contract in my life, I swear to God. My gold contract is designed for people to sell themselves on platinum. And you could just adjust that. And you could say, well, I want more people to actually sign up for gold. And you can adjust what's in that um, based on the available resources. Um, but I also agree with Ryan. Just raise your rates. and and then, But pay people good stuff. I was at NextGen a couple of weeks ago and I um, was talking to somebody who has had to raise one of his employee salaries to $275,000 salary. Because that person does. He leads the cyber security response team. And it, it's either don't offer that service yeah. or pay him what that, he's worth. That seems like an important job. <laughs>
2: like, well, so so this and I'm I will get on my little soapbox here for a second, because I, I talked about this on Business Tech last week and I uh, mentioned the Google uh, certification program, and they're actually expanding that, and moving out to uh, offer that at at some community colleges, local local uh, education spots, and in high schools. And what was interesting to me is, is I got some pushback saying, "Well, that that cert isn't good enough, you know, like it isn't enough." And I laugh and go, "Like, well, Google will hire you with it, like literally, like they will hire their own teams with right. that." Uh, I think savvy providers are going to get smarter about building that junior bench and building it. Because you don't necessarily, like, there are lots of on-ramps. And we've talked about this before. I think you need, like, I think a college education. I think liberal art. Like, I think that's one great, and I think it's the best long-term route. But that doesn't mean it's the only route. And you should have lots of different ways of on-ramping. There is clearly an interest in some of the labor market for better high-paying jobs. Will make that easier for yours to be one of them, particularly when they compare against some of the retail they might be able to do, or or other things with just a high school education plus this cert. And maybe you help them with that cert, and you get them in through an apprenticeship program, for a training program. Like there are lots of ways to build staff, and if you get really good at that, you'll build a pipeline of talent you can really leverage.
1: Well, and I've been really quite aware in the last few years of how much we've gotten away from pushing training within our own companies. You know, like when when I had a company, and I know when Dave had a company, we paid for for our technicians to take exams. We paid for those training materials and practice exams and all that kind we of stuff. Paid for the test and bonus and, on passing. Like, <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, I actually haven't seen a lot of that as near, not nearly as much, at least people talking about it um, and many of the companies that I've worked with, they don't do that anymore. And we need to get back to that well, because I agree with you. we're not going to, we're not going to have an end to our shortage anytime in my lifetime.
0: I, no, see, I, I think you're exactly on the right target there, Carl. It's not that there's not, it's not that there's suddenly no longer enough of this talented capability in the marketplace there never was and we don't have a realistic path to create that much kind of new talent and capability the question we all have to ask ourselves is why do people say yes to take a job at a company money is Some of it, not all of it, nowhere near all of it. There are cultural reasons, there are career path reasons, investments in training and skills, exactly where you guys are going. This is the new competitive uh, format where everybody's got to learn to be good in order to thrive in the future. So new skills. Excellent. Topic number two. Uh, We've talked in the past, guys, about the idea of the splinternet, and we're going to come back and revisit this idea a little bit with an article we're linking to from Wired talking about November 1, the very first ever personal information protection law in China has gone into effect. Historically, China did not have, well, users in China didn't really have expectations that they would have privacy for themselves. The government has certain restrictions around systems and institutions, right, and, and whether or not you can even use certain websites. But once you went on, basically the assumption was well, my stuff is in public and somebody, if they were interested, could find and see my stuff. On this side of the ocean, we always thought, oh, that's not a good idea. And now they are stepping up. I see this on a couple of different levels. One of them, um, this one seems even a little bit more restrictive than some of the things going on in Europe around uh, GDPR and other privacy uh, restrictions. And it also seems to be, well, it's a little bit friendly to the users. It seems to be incredibly controlling for the corporations who wish to use free data as a business model. Uh, what are your impressions? What do you guys think? And what do you think the implications will be for those of us outside of China? Oh, shocking. The Chinese move,
2: move on, a, on a structured one that manages data. Like, let me, let me, let, I'll make a couple of quick observations. So first off, uh, you American listeners, uh, both the Europeans and the Chinese will have definitions of privacy at a national level before the U.S. does. That, that should be a statement of our position on this very clearly. Uh, I'm going gonna, to gonna say like I, I think that what the Chinese government is making a signal of is, is what we don't want is what the U.S. has. They are looking at the use of data and the free form uh, ability for anybody to say anything and do whatever and not know and like, not have the like, anonymous posting and all of it and say like, see that chaos? We don't want that. Uh, and they have a they have built a government structure that allows them to do that, right? So to come in and say we don't want this for the same reason that I would make statements that they are clamping down on their technology industry in general, because they don't want the chaos that we have. That is a series of decisions about their strategy. Uh, I think what will be interesting to see happen is, is there are a lot of large companies that want to do business in China. Such as Apple, <laughs> uh, right. you know, So, so it will be interesting to see how they reconcile their desires to to do business in both play, you know, both in the U.S. and in Europe and in China, and how they manage that. That anybody says, "Oh, it doesn't matter what the Chinese privacy laws." Yeah, it does. Because companies that you use, that you depend on for data storage, will be doing business in China and will be making adjustments to their systems to make sure they can do that.
1: And don't lose sight of the fact that China is an authoritarian government. Yep. So what you call chaos, some, uh, somebody else might call um, creativity, creativity. Free speech, oh, well, the right to associate. I want, I ju- I want to I want to dive back in and kind of say,
2: like, I intentionally chose the words that I did to explain the Chinese perspective. I'm not, I, right? Please right. don't think I'm endorsing. Right? It's not like I'm saying. But, no, no, no. But, I understand. I'm but just but I want that... I, the reason I use those words is to actually like convey the hey, that's
1: how they're thinking about it. That that yeah, that is clearly their message to their people internally. But it's also a lot of this is about. They saw that the the, the tech giants, um, you know, Alibaba to say the least, but also you know WeChat and some others are getting out of control because they had so much money. They were beginning to be a threat to the national yep. government, and that that can't happen. anybody heard from Jack so, Ma? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> he like kind of just like got disappeared, um, and so so they want to make sure that it, that they understand. This data is not your data. This data belongs to the government as does everything else. And it it, it shall be controlled. And remember, we've previously talked about, you know, they have all these like citizenship apps and so forth. So they are tracking people, but companies can't track people the way the government tracks people. So it's sort of like, we got a monopoly on that. So let's not think that you're going to gain power in those areas. It will be interesting to see how... Other organizations comply with this, uh, and Apple's a big example. But there's companies all over the world that you can't write off China as a market and say, "No, I don't like their policies," especially when they make their policies to be somewhat consistent with what's going on in Europe and North America.
0: Exactly, and see, I will say, I will tell you, this has very tangible implications. Uh, For those of you who didn't realize that Yahoo was still in business, last week, Yahoo, in response to this new regulation, announced formally that they will no longer do business in China because it's too complicated a marketplace. Translation, because our business model is on capturing and using your free data and it's no longer allowed, our business model is no longer allowed. Now, take that just one step further into uh hosted cloud environments whether you're talking about just regular enterprise applications or hosted platforms there are data sovereignty and boundary questions that go in here and i can tell you one customer that that we have been working with on this issue their answer is basically for this year we do not have a china strategy therefore we will not sell cloud into china and i thought ooh that's interesting. Let's go do some homework. And I quickly found through some research online and a handful of conversations, six more companies who all six of them said exactly the same thing. We're building cloud. We're selling this to our customers. It is the platform of the future, subscription and outsource, et cetera, et cetera, dot, dot, dot. We can't figure out how to do this in China this year. Um, That will have some effects because Carl, you hit it and dave you started out with this idea uh, the americans are the sore thumb here right it, it's it's not the chinese doing something aberrant in their policy it's quite comparable to what's going on in europe and the only ones who are not complying with that stuff is the american system and therefore do we only want to have access to sell to a third of the world? I don't think so. Uh, I, I think it's going to have direct effects on how American companies operate in America, based on what these transparency laws are going to be on the other side of the ocean.
2: Well, we'll uh, we'll see it play out. So, I mean, car, <laughs> let's let's. And I, I don't want to make sure that people that is running small companies think like, oh, well, this doesn't affect me. This is like, well, yeah. I mean, because. The way these laws all fit together and the way the companies implement them does. And I think that's the real takeaway from an understanding perspective is make sure that you've got that bit.
1: Well, and, you know, for for years, literally for years, I basically ignored GDPR because the paperwork was three quarters of an inch thick. (laughs) And until I had a deal with a large company based in Scotland, (laughs) I didn't have any choice. I was... It was too much money to not fill out the paperwork. And so I filled out the paperwork. Uh, one of my favorite companies in uh, in the U.S. is Termageddon. They keep track of all of these miscellaneous privacy laws. And this is going to be a big boon to their business. Right? Because now you just answer more questions. Um, but but part of what Termageddon does is they make it clear that you can be compliant and you can get your your company's brain around this, even if you as an individual can't necessarily understand all of it. Um, but it, it is becoming harder and harder. But eventually, everybody in the world is going to have some kind of privacy policy, and that's not a bad thing.
0: Yeah. Except for except for us, apparently. apparently. As
2: they
1: say. Well, we have all kinds of privacy <laughs> We've got 50, we 50 just of have them, money. apparently.
0: That's...
2: Yeah, (laughs) No time for that, gents. All right, our third topic today. Um, This one comes from MIT Technology Review, and it's fascinating to me because it's a a thinking about quantum computers. I always talk about the negative sides of things. Yeah, this is one. So the working theory that's put forth here is, is that hackers are, one of the many things they're doing with the data they steal is keeping it around so that they can crack it when quantum computing becomes a thing. That if it's encrypted now, and if I hold on to it, I can then later decrypt it when quantum computing allows me to do that. And there is, uh, that that will have value. There will be information that can be extracted, particularly if I'm just hoovering up everything as much as I'm able to right now as a hacker, and if you think about this from a nation state perspective that's very true that you know if you're if i'm stealing you know secrets from other governments they may have a much longer shelf life uh, out there guys what's your take on this potential risk
1: <laughs> well you know the the internet as all technology started out being so completely open right you could enter a code and find out every single thing about a computer at berkeley or uh, wherever, even even in the military. And then we've tightened and tightened and tightened as an after-the-fact uh, element. This strikes me as pointing out, well, we have been free to distribute encrypted documents knowing that they can't be unencrypted. And maybe we should stop doing that, right? Because, uh, you know, just making it possible for somebody to get a copy of this document and and, you know, this whole thing of... Waiting 10 years, like we, have, we now have hacks where there's code that's been sitting in your computer for 10 or 15 years, and now it's being activated. So uh, the, the, uh, you know, we always use the term, the bad guys, knowing that they're much more evil than that, but the bad guys have a long, long play and that's not gonna stop.
0: It's not going to stop. And uh, remember, principle number one of anything in the digital world, the internet lasts forever right? If you wrote it, it's never deleted eventually all the way. I remember a good old day where we would write things in an email and send it away to somebody and we thought, this, this is private. This is my conversation with you because I have dun, dun, uh, a password <laughs> and that will keep me protected and safe and nobody will ever read my private communications, right? Uh, um, I think that we've all grown up a little bit because the technology went back and radically accelerated the ability to break into whatever existing systems and protocols were in place. And then, remember, everything lasts forever. They weren't just hacking today's emails. They weren't just reading today's current threads. They we're going back into your email inbox and outbox and looking at all of the silly stuff that you wrote 10 years ago. John Gruden, right? Um, I'm sorry. This is a massive deal because your private stuff today is not private, and it needs to alter the way that we behave in terms of technology. I, I, I don't know, right? In the science fiction application of things, how quickly will they be able to break all of this encryption, and will they advance beyond what the the encryptability is of information? I don't know, I can't predict that horse race. But what I know is stuff you thought was private yesterday ain't necessarily private tomorrow. And there are far too many people, including Mr. Bill Gates, who once said, ah, my password protects me. I'll send whatever I want in an email grow up people technology world lasts forever look
2: I, i'll put this on the many list of reasons why i talk about this idea of data management as a service i don't have a quippy name for it but but i but i will also i will say that i think at any size organization there needs to be help making sure are we why are we collecting the data we are do we need to do we have good retention policies? Are we getting rid of anything when we're done with it? Are we not keeping stuff around? Are we making sure that we understand why we're doing it to limit our liabilities across the board? This is one extreme example of where it could happen. By the way, for those that are thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. It's like, well, you know, that's why governments are definitely thinking about it. Spy data, for example, is definitely something that has a long shelf life. Would you really want everything about your organization to come out later? is there a reason to retain all that data (laughs) why are you keeping it around and i think there's value in a service offering that manages that that helps make sure you're not keeping everything you don't need and auditing and inventorying your data and maybe
1: even cleaning up the stuff that's out there because right now there's there's this growing body of detritus on the internet Right? And we've all talked about it. Like, oh, so, yeah, Facebook is going to stop doing this thing. And they're going to delete the database. Okay. And the first question was, are they going to delete it from all the backups for all of history? I eh, probably not. So all those old backups, some of which have been forgotten, some of which are for companies that are not in business anymore, who used to do business with the federal government or security agencies, right? People put crap up on cloud drives and then forget the password or fire the employee. And now it's up there. There's no actual user. Nobody's keeping track of it. I assure you, somebody in Russia has the job of scouring all of these unused accounts that haven't been logged into in five years and figuring out, hey, I wonder what stuff is sitting there, right? Because the older data gets, like if you, if you think backwards... The less secure everybody was about everything, so there's entire you know Excel spreadsheets full of the 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 holy trinity you know username, email, and social security number. Right? So and you, you get that, you got a lot
0: and company finances and strategic decisions and secret information and trade protected data. Uh, All of that stuff is out there. And to your point, Carl, like like I was saying, uh, it never goes away because, and it's not because it couldn't be deleted. It's that we don't know all the places where it is, especially in a cloud-enabled data portability world where stuff follows the sun. Um, It's on many more pieces of hardware than you think it is, and you don't know how to go out there and and delete all that stuff. But data management as a service, DMAS, uh, I'm not sure if it's the best acronym, but Damn, I'm tired of like as-a-service service. Service
2: acronyms, admittedly. <laughs> I you know, I, I don't want to do more of those, so I'm definitely not trying to feed that machine, but I think
1: there's a data management offering out there. Well, there absolutely is. I literally just am about to publish on my community a, uh, a data management template for, for talking to your clients about this because as, as simple as it seems to people who are in the IT industry, If you go to clients and you say, okay, here's a sample document. This is what you use every day. Can you, should you send this through email? Can you put it on the shared cloud drive? Can you uh, share it on a screen in a Zoom call? Like, what are all the ways you could share it? And what are all the types of documents that you touch every day? And you just create a simple matrix. But the first thing I discovered, the first person I talked to about this she was like, I don't understand what you're asking. I don't understand the questions. I don't know how to fill this out. So it literally, you have to hold their hand. You have to say, see this document? You see that name at the top with the email address and right? and the postal address and the amount of money that they gave you last year? That has value to people who are evil. Uh, and so it has to be protected. And we have to describe it in words that uh, that end user clients will understand. Well, Very, Dave, that I, has I, to be our job.
0: Absolutely, uh, Dave. I I remember I learned the lesson from you a couple of years ago in a past life when you were uh, using data about the cash value of data on your personal device. You know, to run an analysis about the files and the figures and the whatever. And if it got out there, I think almost all of us, Carl, would would look at that form and go oh, pfft. Nothing that I send in email has any value. I'm not trading in corporate secrets or or statecraft or anything like that. Uh, The the answers that I learned from you, Dave, back then about uh, just how much stuff we carry on our personal devices, mind-blowing and accurate. Scary. people need to take this. (laughs) Yeah, people need to be serious about this stuff. Uh, Your data
1: has value, please protect it. Exactly. Well, if, you're, if your business is worth $8 million, that comes from something. <laughs> <And> <laughs> something. It, it just might be the data. Sadly, we are out of time, and that will do it for episode 138 of the Killing it, Killing
0: it Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.